they are really sucking the lifeblood out of that basin. It looks like it could be somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of the productive ag land will be fallowed this year. We'll not have a crop on it. It turns out that if you plan for depletion, that, that is actually what happens. People recognize that there is a need for an expansion and an update to our groundwater protection. Welcome to What About Water. I'm Jay Familietti. We're looking at the Colorado River this summer, a river in overdraft, a river humans have pressed way too hard as we expand and build the desert southwest farms, factories, and cities. Colorado River water allocations are drying up for the land between Tucson and Phoenix. My name is Stephen Miller. I'm the Pinal County Supervisor for District 3 in Pinal, Arizona. I am also on the CAP, the, the Central Arizona Project. I'm a director on that board as well. The CAP water had basically uh, will not be delivered in the Pinal County area any longer. There's uh, a few thousand acre feet that are being sent down here, I think they're, but it's pretty, pretty small. Like I want to say three or 4,000 acre feet when they used to receive 300,000 acre feet. So you can see that the, the reduction is huge. And then as to my best of my knowledge, there won't be any CAP water down here next year. So it looks like it could be somewhere between 60 and 70% of the productive ag land will be fallowed this year will not have a crop on it. Farmers in Arizona's desert must now make a choice. Sell, move, or drill a deeper well. It's not uncommon for them to cost a million dollars a hole. Uh, I think the average is probably around $750,000 to $800,000 per uh, well. The time you drill it and then you uh, equip it. And the real challenge is for the irrigation districts is the uh, transporting of the water because the water, the place to drill for the water seems to be downhill and all the fields are uphill. <laughs> so they've got to figure out a way to get the water up to where they want it. And in the Department of Water Resources uh, arena, Efficiency does not equate conservation. So what happens is if the farmer gets more efficient, all he does is increase the acres that he can farm. So it didn't really equate it to conservation. That's an incredible challenge that these farmers are facing, but I think honestly we're going to be seeing more and more of this because there's not enough water to sustain agriculture at the current scale that it is operating in Arizona. I mean, it's just got to be fair is what it needs to be. And that's what we're, we 
really have been shooting for. Everybody has to take a crack, you know, who's why should all the, I mean, because one of the proposals at one time was, we won't give Arizona any water. Well, wait a minute, we, <laughs> that's not fair. <laughs> so the scenario in Pinal County will be replicated in other AMAs in the state of Arizona. And, it, and I think Phoenix will be the next one to see this uh, uh, scenario happen there. Will these folks be compensated? Will we turn that agricultural land into urban development, which uses a lot less water? Are there even water rights in place to do such a thing? These are huge questions that we have to grapple with in the coming years. My name is Katherine Sorensen. I am the Director of Research at the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. We are blessed to have large and productive groundwater aquifers in central Arizona, but but they are fossil aquifers, meaning that the water in them is not renewed naturally at any significant pace. And of course, we want these aquifers to be there and be available not only for times of shortage on the Colorado River, but, but also for future generations, right? The um, management goal for the Pinal Active Management Area is actually one of planned depletion. So back in the 1980s, you know, Pinal County was very predominantly an agricultural county. It, it, it still is. And the farmers at that time chose as a management goal that they would deplete their aquifer over time. And it turns out that if you plan for depletion, that, that is actually what happens. For 40 years, Pinal County farmers relied on water deliveries from the Colorado River. Those farmers tapped into groundwater wells with something called optimal yield. All you had to do? Show you'd leave enough water in the aquifer for housing developers in the future, for businesses that would not need to irrigate. Now, without water from the Central Arizona Project, Pinal County farmers are more likely to leave their fields empty, to fallow them. Because after four decades, Pinal County went through its underground water way too fast. Pinal County is, is kind of struggling not only with the loss of Colorado River water, but also with the fact that its groundwater is all spoken for, all over allocated. And if they now want to continue to, to grow in any meaningful way, they're, they're going to have to find a way to import supplies. And <laughs> we'll certainly feel those impacts. And, and the rest of us includes the, the cities in central Arizona, Maricopa, Pinal, and Pima counties. So everything between Phoenix and Tucson the Gila River Indian Community, the Fort McDowell Indian Community, the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian Community, along with mining companies and power companies. We're, we're kind of all in it together in that our water rights are, are junior to others in the state. That's Katherine Sorensen from the Kyle Center. She says there are solutions. Humans have been moving water for thousands of years and, and, and it's actually something we're pretty good at. But the solutions are really expensive. And the solutions often entail raising water rates to be able to pay for the infrastructure that is necessary to deliver those alternative water supplies. 
And elected officials often are very reluctant to increase water rates because they worry what it looks like on their voting record. They worry about backlash from customers. But at the end of the day, if we're going to ensure the continued delivery of safe, clean, reliable water supplies in our desert cities, we're just going to have to pay more. Confronting that reality sooner rather than later is is really important to our success, not just now, but you know, laying the groundwork so that future generations also can enjoy a, a high quality of life here in the desert. Catherine Sorensen is the Director of Research at the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University, and she is also the former Director of City of Phoenix Water. In this episode, we're looking at what comes next for the Colorado River, at what happens when its water dries up. In Arizona, that often means drilling deeper, tapping into ancient groundwater aquifers. But some people are trying to warn us, drilling deeper won't fix this. Uh, My name is Kathy Jacobs. I'm the director of the Center for Climate Adaptation Science and Solutions at the University of Arizona, also a faculty member in environmental science. A lot of the groundwater that we've been pumping in Arizona has actually been essentially fossil groundwater. It's been there for millennia. So we've been pumping out water that really isn't being replenished on an annual basis. The Arizona Department of Water Resources has in some cases shut down new applications for subdivisions in areas where there's an inadequate physical water supply. You have to have available 100 years of renewable water supplies and you have to have at least 100 years of physical water availability, which in some cases means from the groundwater table. So that's the the issue that many of these areas are facing is not just whether they could access water remotely, but whether they physically can get water right where they're building. And so that's We're seeing that problem in Pinal, and it's been discussed in the Buckeye area as well. Those rules have been critical to all the investment that has been made in Arizona, and it's important to investors to understand that we have, in fact, a reliable water supply, and so their money is good when they invest in Arizona. Kathy Jacobs from the University of Arizona. For decades, Arizona's leaders pushed growth. They offered up year-round sunshine, generous tax incentives, and cheap water. California and Nevada, too. All three states in the lower Colorado Basin watched Silicon Valley expand. From Tesla plants to futuristic data centers, the West Coast has a different kind of farm today, the high-tech kind. Here's Kathy again. High technology factories in particular do use a lot of water to the extent that they can recycle it and re- and treat it for reuse. 
then it doesn't have anywhere near as big of an impact as if it's consumptively used. It's possible to treat just about anything and take it out of the water supply before you recharge it or reuse it. It's really just a matter of cost. The big issue here is political will. It's not popular to talk about reductions in availability of resources to the American public. I mean, they just don't like that. And even if it's compensated, it's not always a popular discussion. Acres of low-rise buildings churning with computer servers for Microsoft, Amazon, and Google. Those servers cannot overheat. They need evaporation. They need cooling water. What does this mean for states in the lower Colorado basin? The data centers we operate are highly water efficient. That's Will Hughes. If you've ever watched Netflix, you've seen the power of his company, Amazon Web Services. The movie streaming giant pays AWS to store and transcode its videos. Will Hughes is the water sustainability lead. Hey, Will, thanks for joining us. Hey, Jay, glad to be here. Okay, so Amazon has data centers in Oregon and Northern California. How much water do they use? The metric that people use is the liters of water per kilowatt hour of energy used in our data centers. And we use a quarter of a liter per kilowatt hour, which of all the metrics that are out there for large data center operators is a, a leading statistic. So we are, you know, we're sipping with a straw here yes. um, in our data center operations. In terms of a typical data center, the, the ones that we're building, the larger data centers, standard design that we use now, they use about the same amount of water as 25 households per year. Uh, which is really important. Let's do a little math on that. If a family of four uses about half an acre foot per year, then 25 families use about 12 and a half acre feet of water per year. That's about 4 million gallons. That's, that's a lot of water. Do you have any kind of issues in Northern California? We, we don't have data center operations in the most water scarce parts of the U.S. or the Colorado River Basin. We don't have data centers in you know the Phoenix area using that scarce water. We do have some in California, and we are again highly water efficient in how we use them. We're also in how we use water uh, and how we cool them. We're also trying to use recycled water wherever possible. So, Will, please tell us about the water and the wastewater situation at the AWS data centers in Santa Clara. Yeah, so there we have worked to integrate, rather than using potable water, to use recycled water for cooling. Now, recycled water is basically treated sewage. So you can't use it for everything, but it's safe in certain applications like cooling data centers. And the good thing about that is it allows us to leave the potable water, which is cleaner and can be used for anything for other uses in the community. And so it's, it's also a drought-proof supply. So to the extent that we are investing in recycled water infrastructure alongside cities like Santa Clara, we're helping to build a really more resilient water supply for the community and for our operations. I just thought of something, Will. 
by having a data center in a water-scarce region like Santa Clara and you're using sewage, right, you're actually providing your own water supply because you're hiring people to work at the data center who then contribute sewage, which you use. There you go. That's that's commitment, man. Perfect circle. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's, That's commitment. And then we're also investing in some projects in the communities to help support water sustainability long-term. We've partnered with the Freshwater Trust there in California to help recharge groundwater, which helps support flows into the Bay Delta, one of the major sources for the South Bay, where our operations are. In our Oregon region in particular, that's an agricultural community. And so one of the things that we've done as part of our broader sustainability plan is after we've completed using the water, you know, we cycle it through our cooling systems as many times as possible, but at a certain point we have to discharge it. And so we, we look at how else can we use that water? What's kind of the next step down the ladder in terms of the quality that's, that can be, that it can be used for. And so when it's no longer effective in our operations, it's still perfectly safe to use an irrigation. And so we're sending virtually all of our cooling water in our Oregon region to the farmers that are right outside our fence line into an irrigation canal, actually, uh, that they can then use to grow corn, soybeans, wheat. And that's the type of thing that we're looking to replicate elsewhere, especially where we're located in agricultural communities. Will, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Will Hughes is the water sustainability lead at Amazon Web Services, or AWS, the server side of Amazon, a subsidiary that focuses on cloud computing. AWS runs 125 data centers around the world. Will is the guy whose job it is to turn Amazon Web Services water positive by the year 2030. You're listening to What About Water. I'm Jay Familiani. With roughly 5 million people, Phoenix has sprawled out to become one of the single fastest growing cities in America. It did that using a combination of ground and surface water. Phoenix is also the place where Intel decided to spend $20 billion on two microchip factories. Todd Brady oversaw that and knew water would be the key to making it work. Todd Brady is the chief sustainability officer for Intel and is vice president of global public affairs. He lives not far from Intel's campus in Chandler, Arizona, and he joins us now. Hi, Todd. Welcome to What About Water? Jay, great to see you again. Awesome to be here. Thanks for the invite. We should let our listeners know that I got to spend an afternoon with Todd and some of his colleagues touring the Chandler plant and the water treatment facility because it is super impressive. How is it that Intel chose Chandler for these massive factories? Yeah, so Intel's been in Chandler since 1979. Quite honestly, we're a Silicon Valley company. So out of California, Central California, Northern California there. And so all of our facilities, our major manufacturer facilities were set up in the Western U.S. so that it was a very easy day trip to any of those locations. I think that was a lot of the thinking uh, originally. As we then most recently looked to expand our operations in Chandler, 
Uh, we currently have four fabs, what we call fabs or factories when you make semiconductors. And so uh, the decision was made to add two more. And uh, the reason for that was a number of various reasons, including the business environment, including the talent that we can attract uh, in the Phoenix area. Very easy for us to, to hire employees, get really good engineers. And then uh, water, as we looked at water, uh, we invested early and often in our Chandler facility to um, optimize our use of water through a very innovative partnership with the city of Chandler. And so it made it a very natural choice to expand those operations further. Just as an aside, can you tell our listeners what we use these chips for and why they're so important to yeah, us? Yeah, absolutely. So if you drive by our Chandler facility, you'll see one of the largest semiconductor factories, virtual factories, because it's actually multiple factories all tied together now, but one of the largest in the entire world. Um, and we're very proud of that because as, as others outsource their manufacturing, we continue to invest in the U.S., so the chips that are made, they're all of the state-of-the-art chips that power the world's data centers, the world's computers, uh, the world's networking uh, infrastructure, all of the what's going on behind the scenes as we're you know podcasting, video casting, all that data is being crunched and transmitted, and that is all done on typically on a backbone of Intel technology, Intel chips. And these chips of, for semiconductors are actually fairly large. They're about the size of your thumbnail or fingernail, and they will have over a billion transistors on them. Transistors are the kind of, the, I, I think it was like little light switches. They turn on and off. That's how a computer um, thinks is it's a zero or a one. It's an on or an off. And each of these transistors, uh, there's a billion of them on something the size of your fingernail. And each of those are turning on and off over a billion times a second. So, you know, try to wrap your head around that. A billion things turning on and off over a billion times a second. It's just amazing. Oh, so the, the the problem is that my brain is only as big as my thumb, my thumbnail. <laughs> so I, I can't really, yeah. I can't process it. Okay, so it seems it takes a lot of water to make these these chips. Do you have any sense how much water you're taking in to produce all these chips? Yeah. So each chip, you know, depends on what process technology you're running, but it's about ten to fifteen gallons of water. Uh, to make a computer chip. And and then, uh, and so you go, well, that, that's not a lot of water, but you start scaling that up and you start making millions of these things and then the, the numbers grow. And so uh, we looked at this early on and said, hey, we're manufacturing in a desert in an area that is uh, water scarce. And so how do we start from the beginning to build infrastructure where we can reuse as much of that water as possible? And so that's the, the partnership that we started with the city of Chandler. It was actually back in the mid-90s. And at the time, uh, it was our, our first factory uh, there in that location. And we sat down with them and said, hey, you know, look, we're in a water-scarce area. How do we optimize the use of water? What are your needs? What are our needs? And we, what we came up with was a very innovative approach where um, we, we help fund and continue to fund today uh, a water reclaim facility there where our water that we use in our manufacturing process can go where it is treated and then it can be reused in a variety of applications. Uh, early on, a lot of that water was reinjected into the aquifer and so banked away, if you will, for times of a drought like now. That water can also be reused by the city in a variety of different things, landscaping or whatnot, or it can be sent back to Intel and we can reuse it, which we do in all of our facility systems. So it gave us a lot of flexibility 
to do that. And, and as a result today, I think uh, this past year in the Chandler facility, uh, we were able to conserve over 3 billion gallons of water uh, a year through this very innovative approach on using water. And so reuse those, you know, create these closed loop systems where we're reusing that water over and over again, again, in partnership with a municipality that was forward looking as well. Do you think that you're headed towards some sort of net zero water scenario where you just become, I think you just mentioned closed loop. Is that a, that a goal yeah, for I mean, you? Our goal is to be what we call net positive. And, and so um, the, the way we approach that is we do a mass balance around our operations, how much water are we bringing in, how much water are we returning uh, you know, to the municipality where it can be reused, and then what's the net difference. And so in the process of recycling all of this water, we do have evaporative losses. Um, and so, and we use some of the, the water, although our, uh, our landscaping is all zero scape, there is some water that's used in our landscaping and whatnot. So you do, you do have the losses. So you're not going to be 100% water that we take in, water we, we um, return to the municipality. And so what we've done is to, to draw a box around that and say, okay, how can we get to net positive, which would be for every gallon of water we're pulling out of a local aquifer, how do we put a gallon or more back in? And so that the, the way we do that, in addition to our internal work, is we invested heavily in what we call water restoration projects. I think we've done, uh, got 10 or so going right now that support the Colorado River system because some of the water that we ultimately use in Intel was coming from uh, the cap water, the Central Arizona Project water. And so how do we put water back into the aquifers within the state of Arizona? And we do that by partnering with nonprofits, with the agricultural industry, with the National Forest Service, or a variety of others to invest in projects outside of Intel that put water back into those systems. I want to reflect a little bit on the public-private partnership aspect of this. It, it seems to me this is the key to better water management in the future. What do you what are yeah, your thoughts on Yeah, I completely on, agree. Uh, you know what I, I let me I'll dig a little bit deeper on this water restoration idea. When we first started down this path, um, you know, we didn't know how it's going to turn out. Is it going to be a good use of our of our investments and whatnot? And, and what we found was the, these public-private partnerships where we were working with parties outside of, of Intel, and particularly say with the agricultural industry. For every dollar of investment that we were making we could get about a hundred to a thousand times the return back of water, back to the watershed as we could by simply tackling it as Intel ourselves and at a fraction of the cost. And so immediately it opened my eyes to, wow, you, you know, we really need to come up with some policies across the state, across the Western US and anywhere that would encourage more collaboration like this, uh, these partnerships. So I think that's a, that's an opportunity going forward, I think, for the people who are experts in the policy space to figure out how do we do that in a way that uh, also addresses, I know all of the, I'm not a, a water attorney, but I know it's very complex and it goes back hundreds of years and, you know, it, it, we get wrapped around the axle. But we've got to figure out how to make those partnerships work and make sure the capital is flowing to the areas where we get the, the, the best return, more water, you know, into our watersheds. 
Well, so let's try to give, so this is really important, Todd, as you know, but our listeners may not realize that um, the area where you are located has become kind of a mecca for uh, for chip production, and the Taiwanese TSMC is there, and there may be others coming. Um how do you see this this playing out in the future in terms of water and, you know, in light of the governor's recent announcement about no new no new growth, mostly housing developments um, that are groundwater dependent? I mean, where where are we headed? More more projects like Intel's project? Yeah, I, I think so. I'm, I'm also I'm also optimistic. You know, when you're in the middle of it, as we are right now, you, you know, you've got the low flows on the Colorado River. You've got um, some areas within the Phoenix area where maybe the groundwater is being oversubscribed, right? When you start looking at the hundred-year models, um, but I'm, I'm optimistic because as a state, it's pretty fascinating to look at the history of the state and the growth. You mentioned the growth earlier, and, and the fact that the Phoenix metropolitan area today uses less water than it did back in the 1950s, right? And, and that's just what because the population has grown seven x over that time frame. Um, and so there were some people, uh, you know, a hundred years ago who were looking and looking ahead and saying, what do we need to do to, uh, make the best use of this very scarce resource that we have in the desert and, and allocate that and, and laws were put in place that, you know, if you're going to do development, you have to have a hundred year supply and whatnot. So I'm very optimistic that, uh, you know, every regulator, legislature, legislator that I've talked to in Arizona realizes how critical water is to the future. And that we're going to come together to come up with some innovative, even more innovative solutions as we go forward, um, you know, to allow that economic growth, but then also just the, the, the management of water. I certainly hope so. And I, I, I'm cautiously optimistic because, as you know, I spend a lot of time looking at all the water data, whether it's data on the ground or, or data from satellites. And... We have a we have a lot of work to do to to make this happen. That's where we've got to figure out what the right balance is. We did. I'll, I'll, let me share one other quick story. We did uh, this one. This project we funded in the uh, the Verde Valley on the way up to Flagstaff. You, you run into Camp Verde about halfway up near Savannah, and um, it was an alfalfa farmer. And I wish I could take credit for this, but this was actually something that the Nature Conservancy came up with and said, hey, what if we incentivize this farmer to switch from alfalfa, which is a summer crop, uses lots of water, lots of losses, and that's when the Verde River is most stressed, get them to switch to barley, which is a winter crop, grows in the wintertime, uh, far more water available, uses far less water. And so ourselves and, and others uh, put up some funding to incentivize that. And the, the farmer now grows barley. There's now a malt house in Camp Verde that uses that, that barley. And that uh, malt is now used by some of the local microbreweries uh, here in the valley. So it just, it, it goes to show they're out there. We just gotta do more collaboration, more talking and figure out how to make that happen. Well, Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jay. It's been a great conversation. Great to see you as always. Todd Brady is the Chief Sustainability Officer for Intel and its Vice President of Global Public Affairs. He lives in Gilbert, Arizona, just outside of Phoenix, a place where people are starting to ask, what about water?
I'm Kathleen Ferris, and I am currently a senior research fellow at the Kyle Center for Water Policy at ASU, Arizona State University in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm also a longtime water lawyer, and so I have a private practice as well. Uh, but I've been working in, on water issues in Arizona for the last 45 years, so a long time. We were supposed to develop a new groundwater management law that would address our overdraft of groundwater. We don't have a lot of precipitation, and so it doesn't get replenished naturally. Uh, and we, we couldn't continue to mine our groundwater and think that we would have a sustainable way of life here. It has helped to reduce the overdraft, but it hasn't completely solved the problem. And that's really one of the things that, that we are now trying to look at as a state. In fact, Sarah Porter and I did a, a report a couple of years ago for the Kyle Center that we call the myth of safe yield. Safe yield means that you're supposed to get your recharge into balance with your withdrawals. And what the information of the Department of Water Resources shows is that we're really not doing that. But for the Tucson Active Management Area, none of the other AMAs are in safe yield. And even in the Tucson AMA, it will not be in safe yield if we have real cuts in our Colorado River water. The Colorado River is over-allocated. And so that's going to mean less Colorado River water for our cities, which is going to be put more pressure on our groundwater resources. That's Kathleen Ferris. She's a lawyer and a senior research fellow at the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. We asked her about groundwater in the rest of Arizona outside the active management areas or the AMAs. We have new farmland coming into cultivation based on groundwater, and that's one of the stresses on groundwater outside of the AMAs. So we have groundwater basins where the overdraft is, you know, five to one. I mean, we've got places where big industrial agriculture has moved in and is pumping huge quantities of groundwater and drying up domestic wells and because we have no real regulation in most of these areas. I have a client who always likes to say, well, you can't fallow rooftops. But if you've got a farm and your water runs out, you move. Uh, and I am very unhappy about this big corporate industrial farming that has moved into Arizona it, at a rate that has been in Riverview, Riverview, out of Minnesota, in Wilcox, they have thousands and thousands and thousands of head of dairy cattle, and they're growing thousands of acres of crops to feed those dairy cattle. And then they're shipping those, selling those dairy cattle out of state. They have, their wells are so deep, 1,200 feet. One of them, I think, was even drilled to 2,500 feet. And they are really sucking the lifeblood out of that basin. But when, they're, when it's over, 
they can close up shop and leave. And the people who, other people who live there or who, who call it home will be left with the consequences. Well, that's scary. I've actually looked at the groundwater observations in that region around the Riverview Dairy, and they're, they're quite startling. There's been a tremendous amount of groundwater depletion. I think that it's going to be very difficult to address something like Riverview because they own that, that land, and they have been there now for many years. And uh, it's going to be hard to stop their use. I've been very disappointed in the lack of uh, will by the legislature to really address, again, seriously, Arizona's water issues. And it's very hard in this state because people say, well, if you talk about this and if you start saying you have to do these things, then you're going to impede growth. Growth is the engine that drives our economy. And it, it, it becomes very difficult to convince people to take measures that might in any way impair that rate of growth. That was Kathleen Ferris. In 1980, she helped create and write Arizona's landmark Groundwater Management Act. Kathy says growth is the engine that drives the economy. Well, in, in the desert, groundwater drives that growth. So this is the next frontier for Arizona, bringing the rest of Arizona, the rural parts, the parts outside of the active management areas, the AMAs, bringing those into the state's groundwater management plan. There, there's no way to sustain a vibrant Arizona for the next several generations, if not hundreds of years, without bringing the entire state under groundwater management. Patrick Adams is the water policy advisor to Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs. He's also a What About Water a listener, and he joins us now. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jay. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks so much. And let's start off with a big picture question. What direction do you think Arizona is going in terms of water scarcity? Sure. Yeah. I think Kathy brings up a great point that we have areas in our state where their water supplies are not as secure because there is a lack of regulation. You know, I, I like to think of groundwater as our inheritance, right? It's a gift of thousands of years of rain and snow, stream flows that's really left us with this precious resource in Arizona. And in many parts of our state, groundwater is the only supply that's available. And so it's used for communities, for homes, for farms, for rural economies. And so 
we have had to grapple with water scarcity since statehood. And it's been a fundamental question for Arizona. How do we manage this limited, this precious resource? Last fall, voters said yes to creating a new active management area, or AMA, in the Douglas Basin, but not in the Wilcox Basin. Both of them have seen drastic drops in well water. Both have seen cracks and fissures, giant ones, um, in the land because of subsidence, the sinking of the ground when too much groundwater gets pumped. What do you say to the growing number of Arizonans whose wells have gone dry and who don't have tap water anymore? I think I'm really glad you brought up the that development with the Douglas AMA. That's an important thing to point out is that we have local communities, rural communities that want to be the masters of their own destiny, that want to take control of their future. And a huge part of that is water security. And so we're here to empower that, to support that, because uh, water is extremely personal and important to every community. And every community has a different, unique way of looking at it. So, you know, those grassroots efforts to come up with new tools, you know, we're very supportive of that. And we want to make sure that all Arizonans have that ability to, to manage their precious water resources. But that still leaves about half of the state unregulated, especially in terms of groundwater. You know, there's a lot of ag outside, a lot of agriculture in these rural areas. And, and agriculture uses not just in Arizona, but everywhere uses most of the water, something like 80% of the water that's withdrawn. How are we going to get agriculture um, to use less groundwater outside of these AMAs? Because let's face it, we want to eat, but we want to be eating for like centuries. Mm -hmm. You mentioned groundwater is our inheritance. Absolutely. And so the key is managing that inheritance and drawing upon that resource at a rate that is sustainable and avoiding, you know, a spending spree on that savings account that drains it irreversibly. This is a big challenge in those non-AMA areas. What we want to do is find new tools for management of groundwater, manage and uh, regulate uses in a way that makes them sustainable, that gives us data for what an aquifer can support, um, tools that allow us to invest in conservation and uh, reductions in use, uh, tools that allow us to facilitate recharge and aquifer replenishment. And a big part of this is investment in these areas. And so that's really what we're looking to do. Just curious, um, I mean, it seems like with under Governor Hobbs, she's willing to take some bold steps, but oftentimes governments are limited. What about the private sector? Do you see a role for them? Well, I think if there are private sector users of groundwater, they also need to be stewards of that supply. And so they should be contributing to making investments on conservation and reuse and water resource management, funding water conservation. We've seen private sector entities who are trying to offset their water use and kind of be water neutral uh, across the region. While you're speaking, it just made me think about the politics again. And, you know, we've got this sort of polarized system in the United States where if we have a different governor in there, all the hard work that you're doing right now may be thrown out the window. And to me, sometimes I think the private sector, you know, especially the big companies, they're around for a long time. They can be multinational. They're sort of, uh, you know, they can be self-governed. 
I I wonder often about you know if if they can be important partners in this in this water stewardship and water conservation endeavor that you know sort of supersedes the the politics that we have to deal with. Yeah, and we need that, right? We need this to be sustainable across administrations across time and to be an ethic for people and businesses that want to locate in Arizona, entities that want to invest in Arizona, water stewardship's got to be part of that ethic. So yeah, having uh, corporate and private sector partners that embody that, that smooth out those changes in the political cycle, I think that's a great point, Jay, and something we want, we're, we want to encourage. Patrick, how would you describe the political climate in Arizona right now? I think there's some polarization in the political climate. I think that's obvious. But, you know, water doesn't respect political boundaries. Water doesn't stop at the jurisdiction of one district or one city where the politics might be different. And I think that there's a deep understanding of that in Arizona. So, yes, there are political challenges and roadblocks and hurdles and disagreements when it comes to water. But I think there's also this recognition that we're in a time where we have challenges and we need to rise to meet the moment because. We've got problems that are going to need to be solved across both sides of the aisle and by urban and rural and everyone involved. So imagine we are thinking about enacting, you know, we're revising the Groundwater Management Act, which the governor said uh, that she wanted to do. Maybe we're extending groundwater management into, into new rural areas. Will there be obstacles, say, in a Republican-controlled legislature versus a Democratic-controlled? Absolutely. I mean, we've, you've heard from uh, previous speakers that this isn't a new idea, right? This is something that Arizona has needed to do for a long time to modernize and expand the Groundwater Management Act to not be so limited. Um, so yeah, there are obstacles, but there are also opportunities. And I think we're seeing across the divide that people recognize that there is a need for an expansion and an update to our groundwater protection uh, requirements. You know, in the groundwater community, we talk about, you know, the sort of buzz phrase is making the invisible visible. And, and it's because, right, you can look at Lake Mead, right, and you can see the bathtub rig. And that really resonates with people. Mm -hmm. uh, but we can't really do the same with groundwater. We wrote a paper in 2013, which we're uh, updating this summer. And it was about groundwater versus surface water use from satellites at the Colorado River Basin, but specifically the problems in the lower Colorado. And what we found at that time was that, of course, Lake Powell and Lake Mead were losing water. Back then, it had been losing water for a long time. But the rate of disappearance of groundwater was between six and seven times the rate of surface water disappearance. So I'd like to say, while everyone is focused on surface water, this was 10 years ago, the groundwater is quietly disappearing. So we have to change that. Absolutely, Jay. We need you. Yeah. And yeah. you know, we are focused on groundwater here in this government. I know you I know you are. And I, I know you are. And yeah. I yeah. I I really appreciate making the invisible visible. You know, there's this something that has always stuck with me. There was this old Ohio Supreme Court case in the eighteen hundreds where they talk about how groundwater is so mysterious, so secret that any attempt to regulate it or manage groundwater would just be hopelessly impossible. 
And I you think, know, Patrick, I just want to say there's little trolls down there that are they're paddling around in rowboats. So you have to be careful. And there's gnomes and things down there too. So just be careful. Exactly. And if you don't get the password right, they will it's you. they will lead you're to in, more overdraft. You're in trouble. Yes. Right. So yeah. you know, that that historical thought that groundwater was, you know, unmanageable and invisible, I think today we're really proving that wrong. We're building this ethic that groundwater is a finite resource that needs to be preserved. And we're putting our resources into not just uh, focusing on surface water supplies, but also our groundwater supplies. Because frankly, in Arizona, we're blessed to have these alluvial aquifers and these groundwater resources. Not everyone, not everywhere even has a groundwater resource to be concerned about. And so that just makes it all the more important that we invest our time and effort and energy into safeguarding groundwater. So you mentioned technology is one of the ways forward. We both know, and let's let our listeners know that a lot of people, a lot of farmers are really opposed to having their wells metered. A lot of industry doesn't, if they don't have to disclose their water use information, they won't. I'm wondering what you see as the role of remote sensing. Will that get us past some of those problems? If we can provide numbers at a high enough resolution I think so, Jay. I mean, you cannot manage what you don't measure. I think that um, measuring and metering is an important part of the equation so that we can get a handle on what's happening, right? You can't manage your savings account if you don't know the rate of spending, right? Uh, That's not a good way to do your budgeting. So if there are better technologies and tools that we can employ uh, that allow us to get that data and make informed decisions, I'm all for it. On the topic of of who pays for some of these changes and whether they're large changes or incremental changes, the director of Arizona's Department of Water Resources, that's Tom Bishotsky, said, we can't pay people forever to do this, meaning use less water. It's not a sustainable process to pay people forever for reductions. I think what we need to think about is how do we invest in long-term outcomes. So when you pay to create a water conservation or efficiency outcome that's gonna last a decade or two decades or forever, that is a good outcome of investing funds. But I think to that point, we really wanna look at, well, where can we use our our limited resources and funds to achieve long-term water use reductions and efficiencies, and that's, that's the way that's more sustainable. I want to check in with you on what I think of as supply-side solutions, creating new water, new whatever water treatment facilities, which are all great, versus demand-side solutions. So conserving more, just not using as much water. I think... There is an emotional side to conservation because people want to be part of the solution. That's why they're so engaged. That's why people are worried about water security. They want to be part of the solution and they want to do so in a way that they're not scared that the solution involves their tap or their well going dry. And so I think as leaders, we have to walk this line in explaining that when it involves asking someone to participate in a turf removal program or evaluate their own water use. And this is usually done at the local government level, not always at the state level. 
Um, it's important to emphasize that they're being part of the solution. You can maintain your quality of life. You can live in harmony with our arid environment here in the desert. And that every gallon you conserve is a gallon of water that remains in our aquifers, in our reservoirs, in our rivers and streams. And then that benefits you and it benefits the community. And so I think that is all part of this puzzle of generating broader action on these issues. Must say, Patrick, you give me hope. And it's hope that I don't often get from from many of our listeners. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you on What About Water? Jay, I really appreciate you having me on, taking the time to chat, and I'm looking forward to working together when you uh, come down to Phoenix. Patrick Adams is the Water Policy Advisor for Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs. Well, that's it for our second and final summer special episode about the Colorado River. We hope you enjoyed them. If you have a question for me or thoughts you'd like to share, please email us at ideas at whataboutwater.org. And let's give the last word to Kathy Jacobs from the University of Arizona. I guess the one thing that really concerns me is that very few people really talk about the implications of all these water issues for the environment. It's always about people and it's about agriculture and it's about cities. But honestly, the impacts of climate change on the environment are already dramatic and will continue to be more dramatic. And there's really less we can do about that. We don't have many flowing streams left in Arizona. All those aquatic habitats are incredibly valuable for biodiversity. And yet, you know, nobody's really speaking for the trees. So it is important that we make investments in protecting refugia and helping to keep from killing off all the biodiversity that really makes our state a wonderful place to live. The longer we wait to solve this problem, the more difficult it will be. And I really hope that our leaders can find the will to make some difficult decisions in the near term rather than continuing to play these games of brinksmanship and sort of waiting till things are a near disaster and then pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Um, we, we need a long-term logical well thought out conversation and um, to make decisions that protect the environment and not just protect um, people and cities and agriculture. If, if the environment were essentially an equal player in that arena, we would have very different outcomes um, than we have today. That's it for this episode of What About Water? Got a question for me? Any thoughts you'd like to share? Email ideas at whataboutwater.org. We recorded this episode of What About Water at the University of Saskatchewan with the Global Institute for Water Security and the Walrus Lab. Our producers are Megan Miskowski and Jen Cannell at Cascade Communications. Wayne Giesbrecht is our studio engineer our fact checker is Taysha Garvey. We had important help from Fred Rebin and Jesse Widow. I'm Jay Family Editor. Thanks for listening.